Welcome to the Talberg Foundation podcast series, New Thinking for a New World. Host Alan Stoga welcomes leaders from around the world to explore the issues that are challenging and changing their societies. From climate change to democracy under siege to geopolitics and beyond, we are looking for ideas that can make all our lives better. By any measure, Iran had an awful 2020. The year started with the assassination of the country's leading military officer and ended with the assassination of its leading nuclear scientist. The economy contracted for the third year in a row and inflation averaged 30% and is rising even faster now. Some of that is the impact of the US and other sanctions. Some of it reflects economic mismanagement by the Iranians. Regardless, the consequences are extensive economic and social distress made worse, much worse, by COVID, which has taken a huge toll on the country. On top of all that, the rapprochement between Israel and the Gulf Arabs fundamentally changed the geopolitical chessboard on which the Iranians like to play. My guests today know Iran as well as almost anyone outside the country possibly can know Iran. Seema Shine leads the Iran program at Israel's prestigious Institute for National Security Studies and spent most of her career in the Israeli intelligence community. Sanam Vakio is the deputy director of Chatham House's Middle East North Africa program, where she leads the Iran Forum, among other projects. Welcome, Seema. Welcome, Vakio. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Let's start with the 60,000-foot view. From a distance, Iran seems to be a mess. Is that a fair description? Um, I think it's a fair description from on one side, but uh, if I think if you are looking from Iran outside, and especially if you are looking from the point of view of the regime, uh, one could say to himself in the regime that they have managed the very difficult situation, um, perhaps in the best way that they could have done it, and they feel that they have found a way to survive in this very severe economic situation, knowing how to circumvent part of the sanctions and and having the support of Russia and China that uh, are opposed to the uh, uh, American sanctions on one hand. And on the other hand, the regime has learned how to handle the anger of the the population. Uh, In spite of the fact that we see every second day Uh, demonstrations here and there all over the country due to uh, economic reasons. Uh, The regime at the end of the day has learned how to suppress suppress it and how to make sure that, uh, first of all, people are scared enough not to join and to enlarge the the demonstrations wherever they happen. And uh, at the same time, there are more and more I would say millions of people that are part of the regime and their future, present and future, depends on the regime. So they are supporting the regime. So in spite of all the difficulties, I, I must, uh, we must admit that Iran is surviving and actually might even be able to survive the continuation of, uh, of uh, sanctions if they cannot manage to have a, a better uh, understanding with the new Biden administration. Sanam, uh, there will be an election in June for the presidency, uh, so it's a highly political year. Again, the regime seems in good shape. The people seem not in quite good shape. But is there any risk of instability that is relevant from your perspective? Um, well, I would agree 
in general with Sima's characterization of um, the uh, Iranian system as being resilient, having survived uh, three years of maximum pressure. I, I maybe take issue that there are protests every other day in Iran, because I think that's a bit of an exaggeration. And I think that actually there haven't been protests every other day in Iran. There are currently protests actually going on in Iran, um, in Sistan and Baluchistan, and, and those are quite surprising coming out of the blue. But actually what maximum pressure has not done is elicit any sort of domestic opposition and instability. Simar is correct in her description that the regime has become more repressive um, and more resourceful in monitoring and pressuring Iranian society, controlling social media, and uh, being uh, very direct in their in their messaging uh, that maximum pressure is uh, creating a sort of culture of solidarity. Um, there's a bit of a rally around the flag effect also taking place in Iran. There are multiple cleavages, and, and Iranian society is uh, brings together huge, uh, diverse parts of uh, the country with different ethnic and religious groups and, and different social and economic classes. So it's very hard to make uh, substantial generalizations about Iran. But I would say surviving is the general, uh, the construct. And I think among the political establishment, uh, survival has somewhat emboldened the Iranian leadership. They feel uh, strengthened by their ability to push back against sanctions they feel strengthened by their ability to empower the domestic economy despite sanctions. And of course, ordinary Iranians have weathered the primary burden of the economic decline, the currency devaluations, uh, the growth of, in inflation. Um, but the consequence there has really been that Iranians have become more politically checked out, if you will. And this, of course, has also helped the state because they feel more uh, consolidated. They feel uh, less threatened from within. I think a bit of the problem in looking at Iran is that we're always looking for the moment where there is going to be a protest in Iran or where there is going to be uh, that sort of uh, sign of internal dissent. And I'm, I'm sort of arriving at my sort of thinking after all of these years of sanctions and containment and saying very much out loud, um, is it not time to stop wondering when the Islamic Republic is going to fall and, and instead think about how the Islamic Republic might change? The presidential election is in June, and the new president takes office in August. How do these pressures shape that political contest? Seema, what do you think? I, I, first of all, uh, it's very important to, to mention those elections, because uh, not because the president is the most important person in Iran, it's the leader that is the most important one, but it is in this context, it is very important because uh, he is elected for two terms, which means eight years. And uh, taking into account the, the age of the leader, it might happen, and it probably will, that uh, he will pass away during these eight years. So from his point of view, the person who will be uh, elected, I would even use the word selected, because it's not a really open elections. Um, but the one who will be at the end of the day out of a list of uh, four to seven uh, candidates that might be at the end, his personality will be very important uh, when it comes to the transition after the leader. I think this is also part of the reason that we see the regime today, we see the split in the positions of, the, of people in the regime vis-a-vis uh, -vis the issue of going back to any kind of an arrangement with the Biden administration. You, you see them much, much more... Uh, tough on the conditions that they are put, putting because the issue became a political issue. And the other camp, the other camp of Rouhani and Zarif, 
the other camp wants to make sure uh, that no one that is close to the camp of Rouhani and Zarif, not that they are a reformist or, or very moderate, but they are, I would say, more pragmatists, that no one of this kind will be a candidate and elected to the presidency. So I think that this time the elections are important. And of course, uh, it will be very important to see the percentage of people that will go to vote. We saw in February there were elections for parliament. Uh, the outcome was a very low participation of the public. And this is also very important for the, for the regime as a legitimacy that uh, they are getting from the public. So these elections are important and they are affecting uh, the current behavior of uh, Iran. You mentioned the notion that we in the West have a bad habit of separating Iranian leaders into moderate, with air quotes, and conservative, with air quotes, which is probably, I won't say a simple typology, I'd say a stupid typology. Um, you used the word pragmatic. Sanam, what is the right way to think about the leadership and indeed to think about the kind of president and perhaps supreme leader that will emerge out of the process that is now, is now underway? It's, it's quite complicated uh, to simplify, Alan, but I would say that there are scholars that, that uh, think that this factional description of uh, conservative, uh, pragmatic, and uh, moderate is a bit outdated, and uh, perhaps we need sort of new typologies uh, for the system. My two cents on it is that, first of all, most of the Iranian political establishment does remain supportive of the Islamic Republic. So they share a common interest in preserving and protecting the Islamic Republic. The differences among the different political groups that exist in Iran, and, and the reason why we call them factions are there are no political parties are not permitted in, in the Iranian political system. So uh, factions are a way of grouping them, but these factions are somewhat fluid, and your factional orientation on social or economic issues could be more liberal, but you could be more conservative on security-oriented issues. So there is not the same sort of party orientation that exists in the West. Uh, but what I do think is important here is that uh, there is competition uh, between these various groups inside Iran. And, and there's competition for influence, there's competition on policies. Um, and in this election, uh, the reason the competition is so fierce is that conservative uh, factions, and they're not monolithic, they're a variety of conservative groups that compete. I mean, it will be important to watch if they can align and unify around one candidate or if they are going to run competing candidates, um, is that conservatives really see this as an opportunity for them to take hold of the presidency after eight years of President Rouhani. And uh, this competition in some ways is very much um, about allocation of domestic resources, allocation of domestic power. Also, um, as Sima alluded to, um, it's very much tied to uh, factional unity as the state considers how to address uh, Khamenei's succession upon his death. And the supreme leader might be considering a succession plan and having factional unity might help facilitate that plan. But ultimately, I think also conservatives are quite competitive um, with pragmatists or re reformists over uh, their international relations and specifically um, in their relationships with the United States. Conservatives, um, I think right now, think they could do a better job in reaching out to the Biden administration, playing tough perhaps, and arriving at maybe a stronger deal uh, for Iran. 
Certainly the outcome of the parliamentary elections suggests that the range of the potential presidential candidates has narrowed. It's going to be, as you just implied, it's going to be some kind of conservative. Uh, Sanam, you, you have an asterisk that you want to add. I do want to add. I mean, we won't really know who the candidates are until uh, mid-April, uh, mid to late April, actually. And so I think it's really too early to say um, who is really throwing their hat in the ring if they're going to pass through the Guardian Council vetting. And reformists or pragmatic candidates have yet to really um, declare their intentions besides a former reformist politician named Ali Motahari. And much of the reformist camp um, platform and potential legitimacy and support will really uh, be drawn from their ability to engage uh, with the Biden administration. It is believed that the beginning of negotiations or the even uh, success of negotiations could really boost their chances. So um, while they are very much down, they are not completely out. And it's important not to write them off because um, if the population does come out to vote, generally when they do participate in, in elections, they vote for moderate and reformist candidates. Let me pull on that thread. The population didn't vote in February. It was a very low turnout, as Seema, you already said. Do you think there is a chance that there will be a much broader participation, uh, which probably would re be required to elect or select a, um, a more reformist candidate? Is that, is that possible? Is that likely? I think, first of all, we'll have to, of course, to look on the list of candidates that will be approved. My guess today is that no reformist will be on this list. As Saname said very correctly, if the people are able to choose from a list of candidates, they usually will choose the less conservative one. I believe that the leader will not allow anyone that is a real reformist to be on this list. So at the end of the day, it will be probably, it will be a list of conservative. The question will be who is more or less. That's my guess. Now, as to the outcome of the number of voting and the, uh, first of all, the regime is putting a lot of pressure on the population to vote. Sometimes they even put a stamp on their ID and that uh, sometimes when somebody is going to, uh, to a new job, uh, it is required to show that he participated. The regime wants to show a high legitimacy, as I said, and therefore it's important that the outcome of the, of the uh, election will show a huge number of uh, participation. So I believe there will be a pressure on the population more than it was in the parliamentary elections, and therefore um, it will be less than it was in the past, but uh, more than it could be if it was free, completely free. Because I think the young generation especially, and even others, are uh, really fed up with, uh, with the regime uh, and are fed up with uh, all this, the tactics that the regime is using. The Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei is 81. He's been in power for more than three decades. As you said, this presidential election may well be setting the context and the framework for his succession. If he dies this year, what is his legacy? <laughs> this will be the subject of many podcasts to come, I'm sure. Um, that makes us first, so that's good. <laughs> um, I think there is going to be um, a lot of reflection about Khamenei. Uh, he's been in power, as you said, for three decades. That's a long time. And he's somebody who really has tried to rule by consensus 
and he has grown into his leadership. If uh, when he was um, selected uh, to be supreme leader in 1989, he w- was not seen to be the most eligible, uh, nor did he have the adequate religious credentials. He was perceived by many to be rather weak. Um, but I think that um, over the decades, um, he has asserted himself, learned to be quite effective in developing relationships and building a very strong, influential network of influence throughout the political system. Of course, he has worked very closely with the Revolutionary Guards. That's the general uh, sort of assumption about his leadership. But I see him as having built a stronger network that um, is not just military or security-based, but one that really runs through the unelected institutions inside Iran uh, to support his leadership and to support the longevity of the Islamic Republic. So that, I think, is one of his legacies. Additionally, he's somebody that's worked very much to uh, protect the security and stability of the Islamic Republic. He has a very paranoid worldview that is deeply anti-American, deeply suspicious of Western intentions and Western objectives towards Iran. And this, of course, has led Iran to uh, pursue a resistance strategy in the region, has led Iran to also be quite suppressive internally. Um, He will be, of course, uh, very much also linked to uh, the very harsh crackdowns that have come at various moments. Seema. Uh, his legacy will be, do not believe the Americans, do not negotiate with the Americans. And this is something that, that I think will be a very, very strong legacy that he will leave after him. Of course, also the question of the uh, balance of power, he has very much encouraged and uh, supported the uh, position of the IRGC. They will be very important after after him. There are even, you know, all different scenarios what will happen the day after. And one or two of them are that uh, one that they will take the uh, the leadership, a kind not of a military regime but a, a military personality, or that they will put a weak uh, personality and they will be in behind. And so the IOGC is today very important, very strong, economically very strong and politically. And if there is a a major supporter of this regime and a, a guarantor of this regime is the IRGC. And I think this is part of his legacy as well. But at the same time, Iran will be different after Khamenei. I don't know to say in what direction, but this leader that has never, uh, never got out of the borders of Iran, doesn't have any experience with the West and uh, is very religious and very uh, conservative, I think uh, in any case, after him, uh, there will be a change. And of course, the question will be what will be the political uh, arrangements that will take place after him? Would, would it go smoothly? Who will be, etc.? But it might be different. The biggest challenge any leader anywhere has is succession. Good leaders pave the way for their successors for all sorts of positive and, and sometimes negative reasons. Do you think... Ayatollah Khamenei thinks about the future in those terms. Is he preparing the succession to pick up the second thread? Does the Revolutionary Guard play a role in that maneuvering? You suggested that they might. Sanam, what do you think? I think, I mean, this is, of course, purely speculative. We have some hints uh, by media reporting and otherwise, but I think that Khamenei is deeply concerned with his legacy. And I think those concerns are very much driving 
his level of engagement uh, within the Iranian political establishment, trying to promote consensus between the different factions um, on the one hand. But I think on the other, uh, the Assembly of Experts, which is tasked with selecting the next Supreme Leader, there is a committee within the Assembly of Experts that has been tasked with looking for candidates as well. We don't have the knowledge or the short list of who is on being considered uh, by the Supreme Leader. Um, and, and those of us who watch Iran, you know, have speculated in our writing and in our, um, in our work uh, of the different scenarios that Khamenei might be thinking about. I personally expect that Khamenei is looking for a candidate who um, is similar to himself in worldview, in, in ideology, one who's very committed to preserving the system as it is, not changing the system. And that would very much ensure and sort of enshrine Khamenei's legacy as a protector of the Islamic Republic and of this sort of novel system of government. I also think that Khamenei is looking for a younger leader, similar to his age in the, in the mid-50s when he was uh, selected. So one of the candidates that I think is um, worthy of uh, mention and one that I'm following is uh, the current head of the judiciary who also ran for president in, in the last election um, named Ebrahim Raisi. I think he is uh, quite close to Khamenei in ideology and in outlook and quite conservative. So he is someone that is on my radar. But of course, there are many scenarios that could emerge. And this is why institutional control of the system very much matters. The IRGC is an important driver uh, will be an important driver in this process, but it is not the only driver of this process. I keep referring to the consensus-based system, um, and I think that consensus will have to be developed among all of the institutions and all of the relevant members of the political elite. So having the elected and unelected institutions monopolized by conservatives will help facilitate consensus more directly, whereas reformists think um, and this is why they think this election is so essential, that if they have control of the presidency, they can have some sway in the uh, selection process. And because reformers very much represent um, the liberalizing views of the urban-based Iranian middle class, they hope to see a more moderate candidate uh, be elected, someone like the first Supreme Leader, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini's uh, grandson, Hassan Khomeini, for example. So there are a number of contenders and scenarios, and you know we can we should be able. To, Iran is notoriously unpredictable. Uh, we always get it wrong. <laughs> so uh, naturally, there will all be uh, some rabbit that will uh, will be pulling out of this hat for sure. Sima, you mentioned the IGRC. You both mentioned the IGRC, the Revolutionary Guards. Um, they clearly have evolved as a much more powerful institution over the three decades of Khamenei's rule. Uh, Sima, you suggested that they could perhaps become an actual player in, in a way in the future that they haven't been. Is that one of the different differences as you think about Iran's future that we ought to be thinking about? You see, it's, uh, it's very difficult uh, now to forecast for, for the future. I would put an emphasis on the IRGC in the process of electing the uh, next leader because it will be very important for them, not only uh, it will be important institutionally, for them to have the leader, someone who will continue to support their, their position. It's millions of people, millions of people, and it's very important, and they are important in their role as the, uh, the one who guaranteed the regime. So I, I believe that even if they will not 
I don't think they will take the power, meaning a kind of a military uh, regime in Iran. I don't think if you look at the history of Iran, it's not something that uh, I it's, uh, give uh, high chances. But I do think that they will be very important in uh, their weight on uh, on the one that will be uh, more uh, that will be elected or will be will have more uh, support within this uh, consultation that will take place. But it is a question, uh, and over the years we we have been uh, asking ourselves how uh, how uh, Khamenei will leave the scene. It is one thing if he dies tomorrow morning and he didn't prepare anything concrete, and it's a different thing if he is. Um, old enough in order to decide, to, to step aside and uh, himself organize the uh, succession, which might happen also. So it's very, it, it depends very much on uh, how and when it will happen. And therefore it's, it's very difficult to predict the chances for someone who is a more uh, reformist or more liberal or more... Uh, wants to change the system a little bit to open it more uh, are very very uh, small and uh, I don't see a, I don't see a real chance for someone uh, that wants uh, to change a little bit the uh, hold of the regime on the population or something like that we see what happened with Rouhani that started with some small steps of a little bit opening in the in, uh, with internet with women in in football and other things uh, this is something that the regime the current regime thinks once you open a little bit, you cannot control the developments. Always when we are talking among our among experts, we say uh, Iran prefers to have the Chinese model and not the Soviet Union model that uh, was opening and then what happened. Uh, so I, I think, uh, therefore, it will be very important for, for the IOGC, for the leader, for others, to see someone similar, more similar to the current leader than to anyone like Khatemi in the past or something like that. Let me ask just one contextual question. Is this a year when Iran is going to be interested in activities outside its borders? That is to say, for domestic, political, social reasons, for control reasons, how likely is it that the Iranians will act up or act out uh, in the Gulf, uh, in the neighboring countries? Who first? <laughs> Whomever would like to go first. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. Uh, I, I think that, uh, first of all, uh, we all remember that Iran is already operating outside its borders. Uh, for the first time in its history, it decided to send the IRGC personnel and army and militias and others to Syria uh, to kill Syrian people and to support the regime. So uh, if we had to guess, we already have the answer to that. The answer is yes. Iran is willing to um, promote its interests. It's what it uh, perceives to be its national interest, also by using force, its own force. And that uh, in Syria, the first example, you mentioned specifically the Gulf. I think that in the Gulf, the situation is a, a, a quite delicate. On one hand, we have a huge American presence in Qatar and in Bahrain and the small one in Saudi Arabia. So uh, it's difficult, uh, or I would say it's impossible for Iran to act in the same way that we saw them acting in Syria. So I don't see a, I don't see a scenario where Iran is trying to invade one of these countries or something. But we already saw Iran 
sending uh, missiles to Saudi Arabia to its uh, to its oil facilities. And uh, we saw the sabotage that they have been doing uh, to uh, uh, ships in the Gulf, in the in oil, close to Oman. And we saw also uh, their the support to internal groups in those countries, Shia opposition groups. So I do think that Iran, uh, I don't think, don't see Iran sending its army or trying to do something like that, like some, what, uh, what Saddam Hussein did to Kuwait or something like that. Uh, Two decades ago, but uh, Sweden, but uh, doing different things uh, that might jeopardize the the stability of these regimes, I I do see it possible, and even more than that. At the same time, since those countries understand the potential and the balance of power, they are trying, I think, in the in the last year even more, to come to kind of uh, of terms with uh, with Iran. There are those that they are closer to Iran. There are those that are less close. But I do think that they are trying to find a kind of a modus vivendi with Iran. And at the end of the day, Iran is stretched enough in Syria, in Iraq, in, with the Houthis in Yemen. I think it's enough for Iran. Final question, Sanam. Um, you mentioned rally around the flag earlier in the context of this year and politics and the election. Do you worry the Iranians are a little more adventurous in order to produce the kind of election result they want? No, I don't actually think that Iran would be provocative within the region in order to drive um, outcomes domestically. I think that any Iranian provocation in the region will be very much linked to the progression of talks with the United States and with uh, Europe over JCPOA compliance. I think the issues, while connected, um, uh, Iran wouldn't compromise domestic stability in in that kind of way, Uh, but it will be very willing to transfer pressure regionally to up the ante and show that it's willing to take risks as it has in the past. Um, In those instances that uh, Seema made reference to, for example, in order to uh, push the U.S. either to respond or to accelerate nuclear negotiations. I think that the JCPOA and compliance and that space for negotiation is um, quite high on Iran's agenda for this year. It's important regardless of who uh, is going to run. Sanctions relief will move the Islamic Republic um, beyond survival and help Iran to meet some of its development goals, improve quality of life within the country. These do matter for Khamenei's legacy and leadership, but also to address basic governance issues and ri- rising levels of poverty. Thank you for that. And thank you, uh, Seema, as well, for your comments. I've very much appreciated this conversation. I'd like to reserve the possibility of coming back either just before or just after the election, because this is obviously a year where there will be lots of interesting developments in Iran, in the Gulf, and in the larger region. Again, thank you for your analysis. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Thinking for a New World podcast. We welcome your comments on our website, talbergfoundation.org. And please subscribe to the podcast in the app of your choice. This podcast was made possible with the generous support of the Stavros Niarchos Foundation.